Hey, Being at Work listeners, now is the time. Time to take your leadership journey to the next level with HRD's Leadership Growth Forum. If you're listening to this show, it's clear that you're committed to growing as a leader. So imagine a monthly experience where you not only get to learn, but also explore and connect with other leaders like you. Each month, we dive deep into a different leadership focus, building coaching skills, holding team members accountable, demonstrating empathy, creating a psychologically safe environment, and others. This isn't your average leadership event. It's a tailored experience for leaders who are ready to make a real impact. Join us for this incredible opportunity and secure your spot. Visit hrdleadership.com forward slash B-A-W because your growth as a leader is a journey worth investing in. Welcome back to another episode of Being at Work. I'm your host, Andrea Butcher, and I am super fired up about this conversation today. This year, we're celebrating the four-year anniversary of Being at Work, and today's guest is the first guest we've invited back to the show. We first sat down in August 2020, almost three years ago, and you really need to know what he has been up to since then. It's so relevant for our listeners. Over the last few years, today's guest has talked to thousands of HR leaders and has identified five key differentiators of top CHROs, top chief people officers. In other words, he's identified what it is that distinguishes an HR superstar. Adam Weber is the Senior Vice President of Community at 15.5 and the host of the popular podcast appropriately titled HR Superstars. He's also the author of the Amazon best-selling book on leadership and culture, Lead Like a Human. And in 2020, he was named to Business Insider's list of rising stars in HR. As you'll hear, he's also just a super cool human being with such a servant heart. Listen in as we talk about the pressure on HR and talent leaders based on changing expectations and what HR leaders can do to remove the blockers that keep them from leading like a human. Check it out. Three years ago, I was on because I'd just released my new book, Lead Like a Human. And I was the co-founder and chief people officer of a company called Amplify. And COVID really changed the trajectory of our business. We were a venture-backed, funded startup that was trying to disrupt the employee engagement space. We measured cultures and then coached executives on how to build high-performance cultures. And we had big dreams to be a huge business. I spent, you know, a decade on that entrepreneurial journey. And pretty quickly into COVID, we started to see that the HR landscape and software landscape had just fundamentally shifted. And we were not in a spot where we could see a path where a lot of these point solutions like engagement surveys were being consolidated into larger product full suite offerings a natural byproduct of when the economy tightens, things like that. And so we had a moment, my business partner, we were like, the one dream that we had is going to look different. Mostly it was just the macroeconomic trends. And we're very fortunate that 15.5, the company that acquired us, we've both been friends with the co-founders there for years. They used our product. We used their product. We had the same vision, word for word, to help all people achieve their true potential at work. And we've always kind of referred to ourselves as brother-sister companies. And so 
we had this vision of software that actually elevated the HR leader as opposed to making them more in the weeds of ticky tack. We just kept seeing these software companies that actually added more work to the HR leader's plate. We really believed in that vision. And so we thought that the 15.5 acquisition was really a great way to kind of honor what we originally created. It's done that. I think that it has accelerated the 15.5 product, but it also, I think, made it pushed for the market to create software that is lightweight, that is easy to use, that actually managers and employees want to be a part of as well. So that was the first part of it, I guess, which was two years ago is when that acquisition happened. Yeah. Well, and when you were on the show in 2020, you spent so much time talking about building culture within an organization. Also, you spent a lot of time talking about values and how important that was to you, not just the values, but to bring them to life in the organization. So I can imagine that having a brother or sister company that has the same vision would be really important in that process. Absolutely. And I feel very fortunate with how similar the values are. Not the same, but similar. And, in, you know, it was interesting on that core values topic is I don't do HR anymore. They had a chief people officer when the acquisition happened. They said, we just need somebody to talk about it. I was like, that sounds like an awesome job I'm in, but values are so important to me. I actually partnered with the CEO over the last six months. We redid the entire company core values. It was because as a company grows, there's this moment where you go, are the values that got us here accurate of a 50-person company compared to a 250-person company and how you move and what is needed to succeed? And so that was a really fun process to get another chance in a totally new environment in a new context to build values that reflected the current state of the business and then also activate those throughout the company as well. Well, and that's a good point to always be evaluating your values and having some sort of rhythm if it's annually or biannually to just check in and say, based on how the world has shifted, how are we shifting? And what does that look like in terms of what we value? It's a good exercise. Through the 15.5 acquisition and your role changing a bit, HR Superstars was born. The podcast that you host, the very popular HR podcast that I'm binging right now, you are so good at building community. And one of the things you've done in that show is you have a hotline that people can call in and ask questions to. And that's so indicative of creating community. So tell us a little bit about the podcast and how that's going. Yeah. So HR Superstars really started two years ago, right when the acquisition happened, when they said, hey, we already have a chief people officer. What do you want to do? And there's really two parts to HR Superstars. There's the podcast that I host, and then there's also a private social network as well. So if you go to thehrsuperstars.com, that's like a private social network that's for HR leaders. Here was the problem that I saw, and this is part of what happened with our acquisition, even to myself, is that the pandemic, social unrest, the move to remote and hybrid, the values of the entire workforce in general, going from thinking of HR as compliance and benefits and payroll and legal protection, all those things which are true, not taking away those, but then adding on top of that all of these new pressures like performance management, compensation strategy, manager activation and development, culture. And what I realized was this other side of HR, which is what all of my experience is in, there weren't a lot of resources to align to the pressure that HR leaders were feeling. So they have all this pressure and expectations on them. When things go wrong over in that bucket I just shared, they're the ones who have to take the blame for it. And yet, because it emerged so quickly, there wasn't a great place for the HR leader. What I call it is basically the strategic HR leader, this new modern people ops leader to a safe place to grow, learn, and develop. So that's basically where I started was I was like, 
I'm going to start this private social network where people can come and be themselves. I pick a theme. So say like mental health, and we'll do one month just on the topic of mental health. We'll create a resource around it. We'll do poll questions, facilitate discussions, do live meetups with people. And so that was the one part. And that is the foundation of the community. And then the podcast, I had this moment of listening to the HR Superstars podcast before I became the host. And I was listening about this concept of privilege and on a DEIB podcast. And it said, when you experience privilege, the best thing you can do is to unlock it for other people, unlock that privilege for others. And I had this moment where I was like, my whole career, because of the positions or titles or whatever, I've had the conversations with incredible HR leaders in all industries. And how neat would it be if I just opened the door, turned on the microphone and took those conversations that used to be in private and made them accessible for everyone who wants to learn as well. I love that. Unlocking privilege for others. It really is community building. It isn't that what we're craving right now is a safe place to explore, to struggle together. And that's really what you're doing with this community. You've talked to thousands of HR leaders over the last three years through the podcast, through your own speaking engagements, through the work that you do every day. And I know that as you reflect on those conversations, you've identified five differentiators. It's such an interesting thing to look at. I value and trust your perspective. So I'm eager for you to bring these five to life today for our listeners. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reflecting on this topic because people come to the community. People ask me, what is an HR superstar? For one, they go, well, what does that even mean? I want to be on the podcast. What's the difference between these people that are at the very top? And to be clear, I'm not confident in total that the modern chief people officer, the very best, is fully defined yet. I think it is still emerging, but there are a handful of people who consistently feel like they're a step ahead of others when I have conversations. And so what I've been doing is calibrating those conversations and then trying to deconstruct them to go, so what is common about these leaders that seem to be at the very top of the industry and seem to be leading the way? So the first one is that they speak the language of the business. And one of the interesting things I've noticed is that a lot of the top chief people officers were COOs, they were CFOs. They actually didn't come traditionally from HR. They made a move in the middle of their career and then moved over to HR. And I don't think that is specifically the advantage, but where I think the advantage is for them is that they know how to speak the language of the business. So they fundamentally go into conversations and go, before I think about my own department and function, do I think about the business first and the business's function? Do I know what the most important aspect of the business is, like what matters to the business? And then when I nest my own goals and when I try to push for initiatives, I'm speaking the language that matters to the CFO and the COO and the CEO. And so I build credibility through the way that I speak. Yeah. And when they've come from the business, there's a relatability. There's a deeper level of experience and understanding. So, of course, they're better positioned. I want to go back, though, the difference in where the organization is, because you were talking about the job description for chief people officers really emerging. What is your sense of how it varies by organization? What a startup needs from people leadership versus an organization that's in maintenance mode, for example. So won't the descriptions really vary based on the business? I do think the descriptions will vary. And 
What's interesting is that a lot of the work that you do in startups, when you talk to larger companies, the people who are the best, what they do is actually usually pretty similar. You have to have more process, order, scale, structure in order to do those things at scale. Manager training, for example, at a startup might look something like getting a small group together and putting an hour on the calendar once a month and triaging problems. And at a large company, it could look like a more formal manager development program. But the best ones, though, still integrate that iterative learning process into it as well. They're very different in how they manifest themselves, but the core tenets of them are relatively similar. Yeah, there's some non-negotiables that are across, regardless of the context. So speaking the language of the business, that's the first one. And I suspect that the sequencing of these five are really important. I think the order does matter. The second one is similar, but they use metrics and data to back up their bold initiatives and their ideas. And I speak the language of the business. I'm putting it in the context of the business strategy and the language of the business strategy. But then I also am coming with something. I'm making the transition of thinking of HR just as a cost center and thinking of it strategically potentially as a profit center too, or I'm defending the expenses at the very least and showing a potential impact as well. The number two foundational idea is you put some numbers behind the ideas that you're proposing to get approved from the executive team. It's so good. And I definitely see a connection to the first one because I would have to know the business to determine the right metrics or the right data set to use. And I suspect your use of the word bold, you didn't just say initiatives and ideas. Is that purposeful? I think it is purposeful. And the root of this is that we're talking about the top five to 10% of leaders, but the common experience of the HR leader today who's trying to be progressive is that they have a general sense of what the issue is inside the business. They have conviction around it. They go to present it to the executive team. Their ideas and dreams are stomped on and they cower back. And then they just end up in the doldrums of HR and they're not able to do the work they actually believe in. I want people's bold ideas for them to be able to do those. That's part of what the spirit of this is. Just earlier today, I had a head of HR say to me, I feel like my dreams are perpetually being crushed. That's that. I've heard that hundreds of times. And then the worst part is that idea was likely going to proactively solve a problem that actually ends up being a problem. And when it becomes a problem, that poor person gets blamed for it. And so I know that this naturally then supports number three on your list. I love how connected these all are. Number three is my favorite, and that is show courage. This one I've been talking about for a couple years since we last talked is when it emerged. And that is there is a general need for the HR leader to find a little bit more courage when they're presenting internally and to show some conviction. So show courage when pitching your idea and you fight for a yes or you debate until you understand why it's a no. And I think what that debate part means too, though, is that if you have your bold idea, you share it with conviction, but it's backed up through the language of the business, it's backed up with metrics. And then if you get an initial pushback, that you're willing to engage in that healthy conflict to try to verify that you can get to the spot where you disagree and commit, or you get it approved. You got it. And I've known a lot of CEOs. And I can even think about times in my tenure as a CEO when I'm thinking, just how badly do you want it? I want people to show me how badly they want it. By continuing to fight for your idea, like there's passion and conviction there to move it forward. 
Exactly. And I think if we're just talking about what separates the top from the average, that the average HR person has some room to grow with that particular thing. And you're sharing as a CEO, CFOs, they start with no, especially right now. Economy's tight. Okay, we're starting with a no. Good luck. Go ahead. What's your idea? A good proper business case, though, to me is a combination of all three of these things. It really shows that this isn't just some thing I'm bringing up just like on the fly, right? This is something that is worthy of our time. It is worthy of our investment. It will have an impact on our business and it's worth defending. Yeah. I'm connected to our business. I know what our strategy is. I have data that shows this solution or whatever I'm proposing can add a lot of value to that. And so I'm confident in that. So here's a question. So I show up that way. I'm perpetually told no. Like, when do I know when it's time to just move on? And when do I keep going? Do you have a way to discern? I also have been asked that question a lot by people who are in this spot where they just get blocked by a COO. Or the other person who's in a really challenging spot that I hear about a lot is someone who wants to be a progressive HR leader, wants to like build a culture that's both high performance and high care, like finds that balance. But there's one person on the executive team. They just wreak havoc. It's an unsafe culture. It's psychologically tense. And for both of those two people, one, I have a ton of empathy because it has to be exhausting. Not only is the HR job already hard, now you have to pick up all the trash that's left behind by somebody else. So what I wouldn't say is if you apathetically share your idea, didn't do numbers and didn't speak the language of the business and get rejected, candidly, you should have been rejected. But if you do this, and then when you engage in the debate, and sometimes with the debate, you get a yes. Sometimes you get a no, but you gain more context. And so you can accept the no. But then that third bucket where you just fundamentally disagree with the decision-making process of other leaders, that might be a good time. Exactly. I think that's a good way to say it. I had a chief people officer. She's in Arizona. We were chatting last week and she was telling me about a pivotal moment in her career when she was at the startup that was investing heavily in people because they were growing rapidly. And what they said they needed in a chief people officer, she says, ended up being very different than what they actually wanted when it came to taking action on things that she was proposing. And what she realized was there was not a values alignment with the CEO. And so she just determined after fighting pretty hard for some things, it's not going to happen here and moved on. So that's aligned with your thoughts there. I think that values alignment is a good filter too. how you move throughout the business just doesn't feel like it's valued yourself or you feel like you have to become someone else to thrive inside of the organization and not in a professional growth way, but not living out of the wholeness of yourself. Those feel like good windows to leave, maybe. And to trust that it felt off to her. So she acknowledged with the CEO and he agreed that it just wasn't a good fit. They decided to part ways. So we're speaking the language of the business, being really connected to the strategy, then naturally using data and metrics to back up our bold ideas, and then continuing to pitch those with courage, fighting for a yes or debating why it's a no if it's a no. Yep. And then on to number four, which is after you do those things and you get the yes, you report back on the impact and the ROI of your initiatives and programs. Through that, you build and foster goodwill with your executive team. If you're on the executive team, you build it with the other executives. Or if you're trying to get on the executive team, you're starting to earn your seat at the table. And what I found in those top 5% chief people officers is because they've proven themselves time and time again, they don't get blocked very often anymore. 
And those are the ones too who do stuff on LinkedIn where you're like, how did they get that approved? That's the coolest thing ever. How'd they get a four-day work week approved or whatever it may be? But they've earned it because they run this process on repeat. Absolutely. And have proven to the organization the value that they're adding. So then they're sharing that. And so naturally, it's going to get on a roll and keep it going. Exactly. And I do want to emphasize here, too, that when you build a business case, you're going to take some leaps. And sometimes you're going to be wrong. You're going to overguess. You're going to underguess, like with the impact of the business. Say you thought you could move regrettable turnover by 20% and you only do it by 15 Whatever it may be, I think when you do this reporting back part, it's really important to be accurate and show your lessons learned in your failures. One of the things that all great executives do, regardless of what department they're in, is they can pretty candidly share about what they learned that didn't go well. And that actually builds just as much trust and rapport, too, for the future. You set a high bar and you're candid and I can trust what you share back. It shows a level of thoughtfulness and really paying attention. So what are some ways that comes to life reporting back? What does that look like? Is that formally? Is that informally? I think it could be either one. I think formally it's good that if it's a significant initiative that you get on the executive weekly agenda. Ideally, you can do a couple of those, like a midpoint conversation and an ending conversation where you're sharing both what the initiative is, what the impact was, what the results are, and you make sure that you're closing the loop. I also think, though, Slack and asynchronous communication is a perfectly good way to do that as well. And you can just send some bullet points on the kind of where you are against goal as well. Yeah, that's great. All right. So four down, one to go. And I think this last one feels really connected back to the ongoing promotion and marketing of the value that we're adding. Yes. And this one, I think, leaves just the executive team. This gets into how you relate to the entire organization as a whole, or the top chief people officers have three main stakeholders, the executive team, they have the managers inside the organization, and then they have the employee base. And so I'm referring to them being great at all three of those. And that is that the top chief people officers are internal communication wizards. They gain buy-in and belief in their initiatives and programs, and they foster this feeling of doing something special. And how that helps across the board is to employees, they're willing to participate. To managers, it doesn't feel like extra work. It feels like it matters. They connect the dots for a manager on why they would participate in this initiative or follow this process. And to the C-suite, it helps them really trust and believe we're different than everywhere else. We're doing something that's pretty neat here. We differentiated culture that is uniquely ours. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting as I look at that and these five is all about building trust and connection, isn't it? And credibility, ongoing, having the relationship capital to move forward the ideas and the solutions that we're proposing. I feel like having the relational capital to get the ideas that you have approved is a pretty great summary of what all five of those really are getting at. And what it's unlocking is allowing these HR leaders to do the work they dreamed of doing. It's not getting stuck in that other world of the ticky-tack and the fire-after-fire world, but actually becoming the type of leader that they want to become. So what would you say to someone who said, like, this is great, Adam, but I don't have time because of the ticky-tack? I do think that is a very real problem. You cannot elevate your career, though, unless you learn the executive function of prioritizing. 
And you might have to take baby steps to get there, but you have to take small steps. So for example, the classic HR leader right now who is dealing with fire to fire, especially at small companies, an employee then adds another fire, right? I think it's really important to write down your two or three top priorities for the week, every single week, and then have a default response that buys yourself some time on everything else. And you really do genuinely prioritize your top priorities. I understand that people's worlds are very complicated in HR. There are some hard things that people get brought to that do take urgent priority. But being willing to time box and push things out a little bit longer that don't fall into those top two or three, or giving yourself two 90-minute windows a week for strategic work. That's the other thing is you can just block everything out. I used to do this in my peak stress mode Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 to 10.30 where my head's down focus work. And I did more work in those two 90-minute windows than the rest of the week combined. So one of those two. I appreciate that. Focus equals growth. And it's so much easier to say no to something when you have a bigger yes. And having your top three gives you that yes. So I think that garners respect and it builds confidence when you're able to say, like, here's what I'm focused on right now. It's also teaching people how to treat you and giving them insight into your priorities. So lots of value around having a top three, having that focus. Yes. And it's like a whole different podcast. There is a lot of work around boundary setting. They're really good at setting their personal boundaries and they honor their boundaries that they set as well. Yeah. Well, and I think you could make a connection to courage. You could make a connection to the communication wizards because I think in order to be a great communication wizard, like you are prioritizing well, you are paying attention. And I could easily jump on that bandwagon. I had a rant on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about stop telling people how busy you are because everyone is so busy. Set some boundaries if you're feeling overwhelmed. So you said earlier that this was the first time that you have spoken publicly about these five things that separate top CHROs. So how did it feel to you, I'm curious, announcing those publicly? What was that like? Because you've been thinking about this for a long time. I have been thinking about them for a long time, and I'm confident I'll be talking about them for a long time after this, too. It actually feels accurate. I share it with some confidence that this is a real thing. I am trying to trust my intuition that I have a unique vantage point because of the volume of conversations that I get to have and the years that I've put in to this topic too, that this is something that could really impact some HR leaders in their growth journey. So what is the connection between leading like a human and these five things that separate the top CHROs? I think a lot of the leading like a human part is in the initiatives that are being proposed. There is a lot of leaders who want to build these amazing cultures, who want to do aspirational projects that activate managers instead of just throwing them out on their own and doing work that they genuinely are proud of, and yet they're perpetually blocked from actually doing the work of leading like a human. And the spirit behind these five is basically, how do you have the business acumen you need so that you can get approved these initiatives that allow you to do that work? No doubt. And also, I think about your body of work now. This could potentially become another book for you. And think about how adding this on all of your work around leading like a human, it's the combination of those things. This is about business leadership as a chief people officer. As you're leading like a human, you're paying attention to the business that you're serving. You're 
really getting to know that business. You're using the data and the metrics within the business to highlight your solutions. You're convicted around those. You're continually marketing and communicating. I feel like it's the business side of leading like a human, the combo of those I'm really liking. So there could even be a way to weave in some of those concepts to even strengthen these five. I like where you're headed. It feels right to me. I think to have a great business, you have to have a healthy business. And how you have a healthy business is every executive, regardless of your department, has to do some version of these things that I just laid out. And so that is just good, solid business sense being applied, I think, into the HR space as well to try to help the next generation of leaders. Yeah, we have this development program for emerging HR leaders, next gen talent that I know you're familiar with. And that is the spirit of that program is equipping them with business skills. It's probably been five or six years ago now, but I Googled building business skills for HR leaders and there's nothing, Adam. I couldn't find anything. I mean, I found Sherm and some other resources. Where's the selling skills? Where are the marketing skills? Number four for you reporting back on the impact. I mean, that's marketing. Where are those skills? And so that is the spirit of that program is building business skills to move the organization forward. I love that. This really resonates, these five. Thank you for highlighting these for our listeners. And thank you for the community that you're creating with HR Superstars. I look forward to seeing how these five evolve. Maybe there'll be a sixth as you continue to talk through and process it. If our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? I'd say the best way to connect with me, one is I share my thoughts on HR, on people and culture all the time on LinkedIn. So that's probably the easiest way. If you just go to linkedin.com and then do backslash me, Adam, that's an easy way to connect with me. And then the other is join my community, dhrsuperstars.com. And you can get those free resources. There's no catch to it. It's just we do create one signature resource a month and then do events around it as well. And I'd love to invite your listeners to join as well. Yeah, you're building community. I forgot to say that earlier about how much I appreciate your content on LinkedIn. Thank you for that. Is that strategic? Do you just get on there and share from your heart? Are you spending a lot of time crafting those messages? They feel very much in the moment. That's a good question. They're in the moment when I think of them. I have a notes file on my phone that I keep open all the time. And then I go on these walks. I take two 15-minute walks every day with my dog. And most of them come from that. But a lot of times, they come from real-time hard situations other people are dealing with. And so I try to schedule them out in the future. That's the main way. But, you know, sometimes if I have a half-day free, my favorite thing to do is go to the coffee shop by my house and just sit there. And I just think about some of my favorite topics. And I will write 20 posts in one setting. But it takes kind of a moment of inspiration, I think, though, too, for it to happen to get those down and sorted in your head. Well, thank you, Adam, for all that you're doing. Thank you for sharing your heart and your ideas with us today. Appreciate you. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a Being at Work story. 